Hey, Cheat Codes listeners, it's Dr. Z. We're coming at you with a special episode for a really special time in the history of our country. The killing of George Floyd has led to a remarkable uprising from Americans who stand together in solidarity to profess that enough is enough. Black lives matter, and we won't stand by as an integral part of our society is being marginalized, brutalized, and dehumanized. In today's episode, we speak with Andre Marcel Harris and Philip Okwo, along with myself and Patrick from Bloodstream Media, to discuss some of the issues surrounding racism in America. The fact of the matter is, for George Floyd, it happened to be a knee in his neck that brought up issues of racism, but it doesn't always have to be the case. In the medical system, we challenge and fight racism in every corridor of every hospital in this country. So in today's episode, I invited two sickle cell warriors to join us because racism inside of the hospital hits just a little bit differently. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Amar, I know that we will be talking about sickle cell in part. I wish that we were speaking predominantly about sickle cell today, but unfortunately we're here for a very necessary, much larger conversation. Yeah, I mean, I uh, first of all, thank you for giving us um, some time on this platform to discuss this immensely important issue. I, um, I, I really think that conversations surrounding what's going on in this country right now is a step in the right direction. Honest, open communication with individuals who are well-versed and um, very aware of the history of, of the black community in this country, um, sort of compounded by their own battle with a chronic disease. Um, I th think that that perspective for us is gonna be really important. So, so, so when we started sort of um, conceptualizing this Facebook Live, immediately I thought of two individuals who I have um, had the sort of fortune of crossing paths with in, in, in my life uh, because I draw inspiration from them. Um, I, I remember our conversations, uh, even though they were brief and, um, you know, not as frequent as I would like, I draw back to those conversations I had with these two individuals being, being Philip and Andre. And um, I, I thought of them immediately because um, it's, this is the time to um, listen to the black community. This is the time to give the black community our attention and um, give them a platform where they can help us help them. Um, so, so I, you know, Patrick, if it's okay with you, I want to jump into this conversation so that please, uh, yeah, go right ahead. Okay, awesome. Well, well Andre and Philip, I, I thank you so much for taking time out of your day to do this with us, man. We really appreciate you guys. I thank I you wanna, for having us. Of course, man. I just want to, I want to jump right into it. Uh, of course, you know, racism in America, unfortunately, um, particularly regarding the the black community. Um, this is like a 400 year old problem. Um, and it's not something that we can cover in, in one hour of a Facebook live. Um, but, but I want to, I want to sort of start by talking about the, the history of racism in this country and, and sort of have you guys tell that story to us. Um, so, so I'm going to, I'm going to kick it to you, Phil, and, and just, uh, you know, get, get us started on a little bit, give us, lay the context of how we ended up um, with sort of, with today, what got us here? Sure. Well, um, 
last year, 2019, um, was celebrated in Ghana and other parts of West Africa as the year of the return. It marked uh, 400 years from uh, when the first slaves were, um, you know, taken on the, the transatlantic slave trade. And so most people are very familiar with the slavery aspect of, uh, of that story, whether you're American or not. But um, I think what um, some of our fellow Americans who may not necessarily uh, be familiar with the African-American experience may not understand uh, is some of the ways uh, in which, you know, some more overt, uh, others covert, in which kind of the model of slavery has morphed and transitioned into um, much more systemic and um, I guess arguably less overtly racist uh, methods of subjugation for the black community. And, um, you know, we saw this transition from slavery into Jim Crow, and then arguably what we see now in terms of mass incarceration is uh, has been referred to as a new Jim Crow. And uh, the police brutality that uh, people are protesting right now is uh, is an arm of that, but it is, is by no means the entire picture. It's kind of the tip of the iceberg. And so, um, you know, racism in America, it's it's so it's so vast and it's so deep. And uh, again, it, it has a lot to do with the criminal justice system, but it also um, has a lot to do with the the economic um, opportunities or lack thereof for the African-American community and, and, and some of the, the methods uh, in which it has been enshrined in law to hold some of those opportunities for African-American communities. And that just makes them even more vulnerable to the criminal justice system at large. So I'll, I'll leave some time for Andre to jump in and you know it is a big topic, so I won't try to um, <laughs> filibuster at this point, but, but I think that's probably the best I can do on a high level right now. Andre, what do you got? I, I, thanks, Phil, for that. That was a really nice, uh, nice summary. Um, Andre. So first of all, um, I think Phil should have a podcast named The Filibuster. Oh, and wow. it should be it should be spelled P H I L Filibuster. I love um, that. That just came to me. You should run with that because that was cool. Um, <laughs> but I I wanted to um, you know kind of you know echo with my brother um, and really say that uh, there. Ever since um, the George Floyd murder, um, a lot of people have been asking the question, why now or why was it him that sparked um, what some people would say chaos? Um, But for others, Phil and I, um, I would say for others like us, we understand that he he was just um, the feather on the camel's back. Um, But it's not to, to devalue the fact that we have been protesting, we have been speaking out. Um, we have been um, uh, trying to make our voices heard. Um, and inherently, when we, whenever we try to make our voices heard, it seems as if um, whatever we do to communicate, you know, the, the, the pain that we're going through, um, it's devalued um, from a structural level. Um, so that being said, uh, even as Phil said, if you understand the history, um, one thing that kind of uh, warmed my heart is that the other day, um, Amazon said that the uh, 
the top 20 books that were sold were anti-racism literature. Um, and I think that's great um, because that means people are hungry for knowledge. Um, people are hungry to understand what can they do to dismantle um, this, this system of racism and, and to further expand the point so one thing that people really don't understand because it's not taught in our curriculum in public schools, and I doubt it's taught in any uh, private or charter school system, um, but even in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, when we think about redlining um, and uh, gerrymandering even, and we talk about redistricting and we talk about all of the um, ways that African-Americans were kept out of white communities right. um, for the fear that they would devalue the community. And I'm reading a book called The Color of Law um, mm -hmm. that really destroys a lot of the um, ideologies that uh, white nationalists, white nationalists and white supremacists uh, uh, you know, ground themselves in is that the data does not prove that African-Americans presence, of course, we know, you know, our presence wouldn't, but even the data shows that our presence not only um, improved the, the um, property values, but it like tripled property values because of certain um, uh, discriminatory practices that we were subject to. Uh, we were subject to blockbusting. We were subject to all of these um, things that the government supported. Um, and so that is the thing that really um, speaks volumes to me is that in order to dismantle this system, we have to be educated about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's why the needle has not moved um, so far is because a lot of people have held on to their whitewashed history um, that's taught in our, you know, regular curriculums throughout this country. Mm -hmm. um, and we're really not given the knowledge um, that really tells us why. And, and to kind of succinctly wrap this portion up of my comment, um, someone would ask, what, why is it so significant about the housing discriminatory practices? If we know that um, property tax funds schools, um, and we know that education is one of the uh, social determinants of not only your health, but your um, upward mobility, all of these things that, that will establish you um, as a um, as a quote unquote good citizen or someone that can pursue the American dream, if you are in um, a redline community, even in 2020, there are still communities that um, were redlined that are still um, overwhelmingly um, segregated from the white communities. And so, if these um, tenants are not paying mortgage, but they're paying rent because they're they were denied a mortgage just because they were black. Um, then the property value, I mean, the property taxes won't be as high. Um, the property taxes won't be paid because they're paying rent. Um, and then that means the school systems that they support with the, these rents instead of mortgages um, are going to be dilapidated. The, the education is going to be subpar. Um, and then if you don't have a good uh, primary and secondary education, then your higher, higher education statistically suffers. Um, and then if you don't get a good degree, then you won't have a good chance at a good job. And even today I was listening to Reuters and they said even a black family who has an advanced degree still has, I think, three times less the wealth of a family, a white family that has a high school diploma. 
Um, yeah. Why is that? Because property, owning land, owning property has been able to be a vehicle for white families to pass down generational wealth. But because we were denied that right or denied that access, then we have no way to pass down generational wealth. And so, again, 400 years later, even though we're not physically bound in chains, slavery is just rewritten into another narrative. Um, and we're, you know, mentally um, slaves to a system. And we're socially held slaves to a system um, that we now say was never, you know, made for us. It's not broken. It's, it's operating like it was made to operate. Mm -hmm. um, so in order to fix it, we have to totally reoperate, uh, re um, write and reconstruct the system. Then that's so such a valid point. I, you know, this racial wealth gap is so large at this point because of the reasons that you just explained that, you know, this narrative of if people just worked harder, if they just educated themselves more, they wouldn't be this issue. That's not true, right? We have plenty of people that are working hard, that are getting educated, they're going to college, but for all the reasons you said, they can't overcome that racial wealth gap, right? And, and it's gonna take a lot more than hard work and hustle to overcome a racial wealth gap that has grown over 400 years for those exact reasons. Um, that is a and if, I hope yeah. I could just interject this real quick. Um, I think that kind of speaks to your point. One of my favorite speeches and favorite quotes that Martin Luther King uh, said, and I hate to use him as the token uh, quote uh, person, but he uh, talked about, you know, it's a cruel just to say that a man should pull himself up by the bootstraps, it first, you know, paraphrasing, it first of all, they have no boots. So people um, are expecting African Americans and even other people of color to pull themselves up by the bootstraps when they are shoeless. Um, so yeah, no. it's impossible, Fair. it's a cruel jest to expect right. us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's so true, man. That's so true. Phil, when you look at this in the context of history, the, that, that context that you laid down for us, this point that we're at in America in 2020, where do you see this in in 20 years, in 50 years, in 100 years, when people look back at 2020, what could this point in time be for black history in America when, when, when we're writing history books in 2050? That's a great question. Um, and I think a lot of it is going to have to do with how we come together as a community um in response to this moment uh i think that how we got here mm -hmm. is um certainly the culmination of a series of, of of incidents as was laid out at the top at the top of this uh this slide and i, I certainly believe that some of the responses on all sides potentially have been accelerated by the anxiety of the pandemic that we're living through and I heard it recently said that um, perhaps we might need a return to, to the village of Africa, by which um, we, um, I mean, it, is, it was meant that we should try to find healing in the sense of our community. And so, you know, the black community has certainly through a kind of spiritual expression, we've had that, but I think even on a broader kind of mental health and, um, and a nurturing of our voice through forums like this um, come together to find modes of expression where even if the broader American public 
doesn't necessarily understand our point of view or welcome our point of view, um, we can somehow find a way to to heal and to rise amongst our own, you know, amongst you know the the, the collective of the African American community. I, and I think some of the approaches, uh, there are certainly some new skill sets that'll be required from that. Um, new new approaches, new new perspectives. But uh, I'd like to think that you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now, we as a community decided that there are certain things that we must do for ourselves, regardless of whether or not it seems the broader American population is responsive. Mm. Um, there has been a lot of reason for encouragement. Again, forums like this, a lot of the public remarks made by a number of different um, heads of companies and and uh, and other, you know, even my here in Atlanta, the Children's Museum sent out something today talking about how they're with the community. So that has been encouraging. But at the end of the day, I think um, there has been historically as, as a function of this racism, this this kind of repeated uh, subtextual value judgment mm -hmm. on the value of our voice and of, of our expression. Mm -hmm. And um, in as much as the total systemic racism in the, in the United States has been kind of a game of inches, it's not just the police brutality, oh, that's the most visible expression, but it's sure. again, all these little, these little maneuvers here and there, both within the law and outside of the law. Uh, but it's been even, for example, the, um, the forms of protest, very peaceful protest through the likes of Colin Kaepernick mm -hmm. that were rejected, that again, there's an implicit value judgment that your voice as a black man, whether you are wealthy or not, famous or not, um, it doesn't have value. And so we find ourselves at this point because as long as that value judgment keeps getting made, on implicit and explicit levels um, that our voice is valued, whether it's peaceful or not, then we come to the point where we have to ask ourselves, well, then if it wasn't valued when it's peaceful, then why not express it in perhaps more demonstrative ways like these riots, mm -hmm. right? And it doesn't by any means condone, we don't condone, you know, the, the destruction of property, but we're people in a community that seems to be left with very few options. So for sure. So so for me, I mean, I'm you uh, as you know, you know, I have um, through my work with sickle cell disease, I have really entrenched myself with friends who are black, both patients, providers, advocates, things like this. I am, um, you know, as a minority myself, uh, a minority that has um, the sort of has has come they uh, came to this country in um, a situation where black people had fought for minority rights already. We came to a country that was more accepting of minorities because of the bloodshed and the oppression of black people that you fought against, right? So to me, even though you know I'm not part of the black community, I feel a tremendous debt to the black community in raising that type of minority awareness. Um, and, 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 you know, I think that I have, I have a lot of feelings about this and how I can contribute and what me as a minority can do. 
I, I think though, before I get to that, because that's a huge topic before I, before I jump into that, you know, one thing that I think about frequently is in 2020, social media is, you guys know, a powerful tool. We saw 45 use social media to um, flip the country over, right? Um, and, and and make it his. And um, th- there's no no way to understate the, the power of social media. You know, in 1991, we saw LAPD beat down an American construction worker named Rodney Glenn King, right? And America was mad then, right? And then just like Patrick said, there's no shortage of names that we can pull from Trayvon Martin to Brianna to, you know, of course now George. Um, I, I feel like the anger that we had as a country for Rodney King in 1991, why did, what happened? What, how, how did we lose the, how did we lose our interest? How did we, how did America as a country just not care? You know, like what this happens, how many reminders do we need? right before it's enough yeah. um, and and how what do you guys think is the best way to keep this in the public eye continuously if i could jump in on that um i first would like to preface what i'm going to reply to you by saying um like you said before i think you know when rodney king uh was beat um i was only two years old so of course i don't remember that moment um, I did learn about it in, in history, but I don't I wasn't in the moment. Um, but again, like you said, social media wields a powerful weapon. And, um, you know, back then we didn't have social media. I think the fact that cell phone footage um, is catching um, and documenting a lot of the stuff that um, pre cell phone footage did not see. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's what's um, adding fuel to the flames um, to me in a good way, because especially with um, George Floyd, especially with uh, some of Philando Castile um, and some of the others, um, Sean Reed, that were killed um, while social media was watching on a live stream platform or on a video platform. um, I am I am over overconfident to say that if those uh, videos did not exist, um, the recognition would never get to the level that it is. And even um, with Philando Castile and others, even though it was uh, uh, the revolution, so to speak, was televised, um, the justice still was not actualized. And and that's um, the sad part to me is that even if we had video proof, that still doesn't seem to be enough. Um, So to answer your question, I think continuing to be vocal on social media and like you said, um, wielding its power, I think um, is key. A lot of people demonize social media, um, but it can help. Um, um, And any times we have um, mediums like that, um, there's always gonna be a pro and there's always gonna be a con. And you have to learn how to uh, take advantage of that platform to to your you know for your good, yeah. um, and then I also wanted to say kind of to speaking towards what we see about the vehement protests. Um, like Phil said, I think COVID nineteen is also another match that was lit um, that kind of spread the flames because we were already on in about the racial injustice that we saw 
just with COVID-19, um, just with um, the health disparities we saw. So when more people, um, Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor had died months before most people even knew about it. Um, and I think that honestly added a lot of uh, tension as well, because we felt like this should have been something the media covered um, to keep us informed. Um, and to kind of wrap up what I'm what I'm saying is I think one thing is to hold the media accountable as well, um, because what really grinds my gears is when um, we when we protest most of the time um, they are peaceful. Most of the time they are very uh, platonic. Um, but when here in North Carolina, some of the, the schools here, whenever they lose a football game or a hockey game or any type of game. Um, they will tear the city down. Um, but the media will report that, you know, just rowdy college kids were having a good time. Um, but if we fight against uh, being murdered, <laughs> then we are labeled thugs and lawless. Um, and to me, that's why um, I may, you know, and I've, I've gotten controversy. Again, I don't just, you know, condone, like Phil said, people going out and being violent intentionally and I don't condone people destroying innocent bystanders you know property and, and all of that but at the same time I do think that there is a place um, for demonstratively speaking out um, especially when it comes to vestiges of slavery and vestiges of um, Jim Crow and vestiges of the Confederacy um, so when I see people defacing Confederate statues doesn't bother me when I see people um, tumbling over um, buildings with, you know, that honor Confederate soldiers that were openly white supremacist. It doesn't bother me. Um, so those are the things I want to say, because when when our communities were terrorized and people uh, were coming into our homes and snatching people out of their beds and hanging them on a tree, um, no one cared. But now people care that we are protesting um that you understand that black lives matter. No, we're not devaluing all lives. No, we're not devaluing, you know, Hispanic or Middle Eastern lives. But at this point, we are trying to bring to the forefront that black lives matter because seemingly no one else other than black people care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, that is, um, that's so true. I, um, yeah, this all, this all lives matter thing is bothering me too, because, um, I don't know, man, I, someone recently told me like, if someone's grandma died, you wouldn't roll up to the funeral and be like, but all grandmas matter. Like you would spend that day being like, you know yeah. why I care about right. you and I'm sad for this. And how can I support yes, you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that, that's, that's true. Phil, anything you want to add to what Andre just said? Yeah, I would absolutely love to expound. I think the question you asked is, did we fall asleep? <laughs> you know, what happened between Rodney King and here is such a great one. And, 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 Andre is right that social media and the proliferation of cameras everywhere is going to help because a lot of the stories that we've been telling since, you know, NWA, since Mar you know, Marvin Gaye's like, what's going on? Like, these are the mm -hmm. stories that have been told, but they didn't, you can only tell so much of a story through a song, right? And so capturing that imagery does help to tell the story, but I fear for what uh, Killer Mike alluded to over the weekend, um, yeah. what, what might become a sense of murder porn, right? Mm -hmm. Where we're seeing these things captured on um, on social media and they get proliferated, they go viral. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that what we hopefully would, would need to see more of is much more attention to, again, the kind of some of the inner working, much more investigative reporting on the the less sensationalizable aspects of systemic racism in America, right? And so the, the the confrontation of a black man with a police officer or any black individual with a police officer is gonna generate oh, I think we the have... only time we talk about this. It shouldn't be the only time it gets reported on the news. And that is the most uh, readily sensationalizable aspect of it, but that's not all of it. It goes so much deeper than that. Again, that is just the tip of the iceberg. So when we talk about uh, you know the value judgments around um, what is the importance of the black, the black voice? There's not that's not just manifesting in like the protests of of, of NFL players. Um, what about when we as patients find ourselves in the emergency room and we let a doctor know that hey, this type of narcotic doesn't work for my sickle cell? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a there's a value judgment that your voice doesn't matter, and and so again, the doctors we respect that. They pertain, but we as people who live with chronic condition from birth, we have some say and some skin in the game as far as like what treatment methodologies are going to work best for us. And so when we show up to the to to the ER and we have certain um, you know uh, dialogue and get dismissed as either drug seeking or whatever, that value judgment recurs. That your life, your voice as a black person, as a black patient, has no value and it won't be incorporated in your care, even though you'll be paying the bill, right? It's And so these are the things that, again, they poke their their ugly head over and over. What's the value judgment of the fact, you know, there was a, there's the idea that slaves back in the day were only given like the, 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 the throwaway parts of the pig chitlins and stuff like that. Well, that value judgment, slavery doesn't exist, but when you go and look in predominantly black and brown communities today and you see that they're, they're food deserts and there's no investments in groceries and there's no investments in nutritious food, that value judgment is, again, it's, 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 it's a recurring thing. So why doesn't that get as much attention from the news as the standoffs against police, right? And so that's the thing where, um, again, we don't, we don't fall asleep per se as we get lulled to thinking that if there was no confrontation this week, I guess, you know, racism is in check this week. And so what are the invisible ways, the faceless ways in which it continues to go on in between the instances of, of police brutality? Uh, so, you know, I, I don't have necessarily the answer at the ready, but I think those are the things that potentially get overlooked and that make us, again, they, they draw us into this lull where it does feel like we're asleep. It does feel like we don't, you know, that things, racism isn't still moving when it is very much, you know, it, it's at scale. When you live in a capitalist society like the America, like the United States, people go to sleep, people get sick, but it's systems that run 24 seven. And, um, and so that's the thing we need to peel, do a better job of peeling the layers back on. Um, with both the media, as Andre alluded to, and and uh, and in discussions like this, those those are those are amazing insights from the both of you, man. I I just want to I want to yeah. I'm sorry. Can I just want a quick addendum? Absolutely. No, you, um, don't, you don't apologize. And, and because <laughs> Phil 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 is the man, man. I, I... Context is I heard the other day listening to a podcast and I never thought about it this way. 
it's not black people's job to dismantle racism. Mm. It's the people who created it. Yeah. If you created it, then you have to put as much time to dismantle it. Yes, you may not have been the person who was, you know, there in 1776, mm. but still, um, mm-hmm. you your privilege contributes to the to the mm. to the to the monster or to the machine of racism. Mm-hmm. So therefore, your voice will uh, really matter more in destructing um, in in its destruction than ours. Because again, we are marginalized. No, people are not going to care as much um, about this. You know, we could Black Lives Matter um, until we're blue in the face. But some of the things that I have seen have um, that have been positive changes, unfortunately, came from um, you know our white counterparts who were in government or our white counterparts who had wealth and access to power um, mm-hmm. to actually use their uh, platform to uh, cause destruction in this system. Um, and I think to go back to your question, I think because we live it, we just like Phil talked about sickle cell is something we were, you know, we, we were born with it. We were born black. We didn't wake up yesterday being black, just, you know, miraculously. So I think sometimes it's not that we fell asleep, but we become numb to it. It's, we're used to it. It's like an extra finger or extra arm or, or whatever. It, it's a part of us, whether we want to admit it or not. Um, and then, like I told someone else, I feel like this is just my assumption. I feel like every person of color, especially every African-American, has been a victim of, of overt or covert racism. They just may not know it. Because mm-hmm. um, I asked the question, you know, have you been a victim of racism? And someone said no. I'm like, you never know behind the scenes on what, uh, you know, from a structural and institutional level, the things that um, you were victim of, of racism. So I say that to say we, we experience it every day and we become numb. So really the, the people who really have to take a stake this time to really help us. And I'm not saying that we don't have, a, a, you know, skin in the game either. But the people who constructed this system have to be one of the main players in destructing it as well. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to ask a quick follow-up along, along those lines, actually, because this is something that I think about a bit. Because when I think about myself as a white man, I, the word privilege is only something in the last few years that I actually have come to peace with. Because I didn't, for a long time, I'd hear that word and think, I don't feel like I'm a privileged person. Like, I grew up with hemophilia. My dad wasn't around. I had to move school. I had a, all these hard things in my life. Yeah. It wasn't until I got to a certain point, And I, I, was, I think the, the time it resonated with me was that someone said, like, yes, that's all true. And imagine if you were black. Mm-hmm. And that sort of, at the right age, helped me understand what the word meant um, in this context. And as we have a conversation about it's not the responsibility of the black person to deconstruct racism in America, I think, okay, well then it's, it really sounds like it may be the responsibility of white people to do more. So let's look at that category of people. There's people like me, you know, I got my Black Lives Matter shirt on, we're having this conversation, I'll make a donation, might go to a protest. Is that enough? And then on the other hand, there's the people who might be way more responsible, the active white supremacists walking around now. But what, are, what do we expect them to do today? I don't expect them to do very much. So if they're not doing much, and I think I'm doing enough, who's supposed to be doing what? So I would love to hear from each of you, That's your response to that, and, and how you think about that element of things. Phil, do you want to jump in and I'll, I'll follow you up? I think 
what you're one of the things that um, um, I guess I'll take the take the two the two the two parts. Uh, someone like yourself, who again is, is open and receptive to the idea or the concept of privilege and actually doing something to improve the system, versus the versus the person who again might be an, a, an active white supremacist and uh, um, trying more overtly to to um, subvert black people, um, black and brown, whatever you name it. Um, I think for would be allies like yourself one of the best things that uh you can do is continue to inform forums like this again that where the value judgment the value statement the subtext here is that your voice matters we want to hear from you this is it's such a small thing but it but it is a big thing because we're we're constantly competing against we're constantly running up against a society and a system at large that tells us that our voice doesn't matter right so this is a good place to start so kudos to that already I think one of the things that you could continue to do as as an ally is to um, to have those necessary those difficult conversations when we aren't necessarily in the room, right? Mm -hmm. With the folks that um, they are maybe the more the more active white supremacists or the more more ignorant. But um, I generally my general opinion on that type of ignorance is that it's a function of the stories that people have heard about us as a community. And so if you grow up with those kinds of views, right. odds are these were views that you heard in your family or in your, your immediate community and less likely that you actually interacted with somebody to come, to, you know, of that culture to come to those views. This is like, it's like the, the, the Chinese water torture. It, it's marketing. It's basically the concept of marketing. And so if the stories that get told about the black community are what you see on cops and what you see, you know, on the wire, mm -hmm. then you're going to come up to get with certain views. And so um, it's hard for me as much as, as distasteful as those views are for me as a person on the receiving end of that, like, I, I get it. I don't want to make a passport. I get it. But it, it's a reflection of, of ignorance. And it's a reflection of how the society at large tells stories about us as a people from a specific angle. And so what allies like you can do is have those conversations, dispel that ignorance when we're not in the room, but again, continue to make um, avenues and make forums where we can tell our stories and represent ourselves in the way that we actually truly are. Um, and so that would be my challenge to the person who is the active, the active racist is if they if they can't get it from having conversations like you, is I would challenge them to actually sit down, take a black person to lunch, take a black and brown, and try to understand where they're coming from because we might find, and given the, the brief history you outlined, that there may be a much more in common than you realize. And um, and that's the first the first step is just a bit of empathy. Uh, and, and, you know, how does empathy scale? Uh, again, it's partially through the right storytelling It's partially through um, amplifying the voice of those who are otherwise marginalized. But those would be the, the two places I'd say we could start. And I'm sure Andre would have a lot of great additions to that. Yeah. So, uh, Phil, you you were spot on with what I was going to say uh, to answer your question. I think first of all the the very explicit um you know white supremacist white nationalists um that that really supports the idea of segregation and slavery and um you know they they were you know they're they have roots in the confederate south and all of these things um those type of people 
who are still today um, on police forces or in positions of power to do us harm, not probably, you know, like come out and, and lynch us, but they may do us harm, like Phil said, behind a closed door in a boardroom. Um, I think those people aren't really, sadly, I just think those people, it would be harder or even impossible to really change their mind about the situation. Um, that, that could be debatable. Um, however, one thing for people like you, like Phil said, in those, uh, uh, behind those closed doors and, and in those boardrooms, um, I think this would be a great story to kind of, to prove my point. Um, I, I tried to um, challenge myself in reading and I joined Oprah's book club to do that. Um, and so a couple of months ago, she chose a book called American Dirt. Mm. Um, and it's a, if you didn't hear about it, it's a book that was written by a non-Latina uh, uh, about um, a Mexican and her, a Mexican family basically immigrating into uh, the United States from Mexico to escape um, cartel violence and, you know, all of this stuff. There was a huge uproar about um, the book itself. Um, Oprah had um, the writer and she had um, the publishing company um, on her particular show to talk about the book. And here's one thing that I thought was extremely powerful. Even though they were Mexicans, I think it, it really speaks to all people of color. Um, they willingly admitted that they had no one who was Latina or Latino, Hispanic, or anyone in that similar group on their board, um, in advisory committees, on their staff that had the influence to tell them this may not have been a good decision or this may not have been a good decision. And I think one of the most powerful things that people, as I said, with privilege, inherent privilege, um, like and and I and I, I appreciate you telling um, and being honest that you you didn't really understand that 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 framework until someone kind of broke it down to you. Um, it's an inherent thing. You're born, you know, just like we're born with our black skin. Mm -hmm. You're born with a, a privilege. Whether you're the poorest of white people, there's still an inherent privilege that we would never get. Um, and so, for someone who has that privilege. And you are in those boardrooms and you are an employee of that company. Like Phil said, it is your responsibility. And that's just how I feel to use your privilege and use your voice and use your um, advantage to speak up. So um, for that book, for example, there was um, part of the cover that that was controversial um, about Bob Dwyer and how, you know, a lot of Mexicans that is very visceral for them, barbed wires. Um, and so. They were saying you could simply fix that because the average Mexican person or the average Latina or Latino would have told you that this is offensive or this could be viewed as offensive. So I hope that makes sense. Of course, um, you know what you're doing, it is, it is helpful. But and of course, everybody like you aren't in those positions where they're, you know, in the boardrooms or they're, you know, on the board. Um, but wherever you may see it, um, just like when you're uh Line when they say if you see something say something um i think it's you know just the right thing to do if you see it um you say something and you try to correct that behavior yes. if you have the power to do so um and i think that is very um it may sound simple but i think that could um help a long way um because i've seen and I, i'll wrap it up with this i saw something on facebook the other day 
um, presumably a teenage white girl started recording a conversation with her and her parents. And her parents were basically saying how black people will never amount to anything. Basically, I'm, you know, paraphrasing how black people are just ghetto. They live in ghettos and they were born, you know, they were basically destined to be ghetto. And the statistics prove that, you know, that basically like their lives doesn't matter. And you could see this white girl who apparently by her education or her, you know, association or whatever uh, medium it was, her education about the plight of the black people um, was almost at tears because she was trying to educate her family about why their viewpoints were wrong. Did, was she successful? Probably not. But she used her privilege to speak up. And that is that to me speaks volumes. If you are just like um, they talk about sexual harassment, um, if you allow people to continue to say inappropriate jokes in your presence, then your silence um, equals that you condone it um, from a human resources perspective. So for me, um, it means a lot more that you are helping to destruct racism. If you think of it as a house, you may be uh, taking down the chandelier every time you speak up. If you think of it that way, you may be taking down a banister every time you speak up, but you may not be hitting the institution with a wrecking ball, but you are destructing it bit by bit, piece by piece, brick by brick, by every time you speak up for us when we're not there or we don't have the the respect or the power or the privilege to speak up. Because we do speak up, but it, it depends on if people would rather listen or not. Those are, I mean, you guys gave us so much insight in both of those answers, and there's so much to unpack in both of those answers, and there's some points I want to hit, too. Um, you know, I... Speaking of privilege, I, I, I'm a minority. Um, I, I feel like I felt like I was a, I grew up in Canada. I felt like a Canadian boy, just like everybody else in my class, um, white adjacent, um, until, and I think I talked to you guys about this when we met in Fort Lauderdale, until 9-11. And I was 16 years old uh, when 9-11 happened. And that was the first time that I went to, I went to school and I was like, people look at me different now. You know, I'm now um, a Muslim. I'm a brown Muslim. I'm a terrorist now, right? Um, but I think it's privilege in itself that it took for me to be a 16-year-old boy in high school to feel different for the first time in a community that I lived in, right? Um, that's privilege too, right? In its own way. And um, I can't imagine that there's a 16-year-old black child anywhere in this country that hasn't felt different or has been subject to someone's bias or someone's racism um, at that point in their life. And that's, to me, so sad, right? That's just like, um, you know, that's, I feel like, privilege in its own way. There's minority privilege, too, when, when you're not a black minority. Um, so I, I don't know. I just wanted to, I wanted to put that out there. I want to jump back to the sickle cell thing really quick. Um, that, that Phil talked about, um, you know, racism, it doesn't have to be a knee in your neck, right? It's this concept of it doesn't need to be a video of someone shoving a knee into the neck of a black guy for nine minutes until they die. Um, my, my whole thing, you guys know, is how do we fight racism in the hospital? Because if you walk into an ER as a black woman, just for being black, you're five times more likely to die, right? Um, we we, we see this all the time, and um, 
people don't recognize it in the hospital as racism because you're not suffocating someone literally, right? Um, but we are definitely not listening to patients the way we deserve to. We're not respecting patients the way we deserve to because they are black. And that to me is a huge problem because um, the hospital, the medical system runs 24 seven, right? And a community for a community to thrive, a community has to be healthy and taking away health from a community is just another form of suppressing that community. Um, so this has become such a major thing for me that I, um, this is all I want to do when I wake up is, is fight with insurance companies, fight with administrators, um, pick fights and stand up for this community because um, we have a real problem in the healthcare industry and it doesn't manifest any more directly than it does in sickle cell disease where you're black, you have pain, you have uh, a need for opioids in the time of an opioid epidemic, you have all of the odds against you at this point, right? Race, uh, a pain condition, a chronic condition, a healthcare system that's biased and racist, um, a policymaking system that makes reimbursement difficult. Um, you have a medical institution that's teaching doctors um, in a sort of in a in a filter that doesn't include empathy for for minorities and black people. So you guys, the sickle cell folks, are really against. You really have a, it the hardest. I, I have to say, it's um, it's very very challenging seeing it as a physician. I can't even imagine how it is seeing it as a patient. I, I want to hear a little bit more about that from you guys, though. Tell, tell me about racism in the hospital. Tell me about, tell me about I know, I know, I know. It's every visit, right? You can't go through every visit. But I mean, what, what can we do as healthcare providers to start making things better for you? I mean, what is the how do we fix this? Because for me, this is the place where I can make an effect and I want to make an effect, but it requires your voices to be amplified in this situation. So tell me a little bit about that. Go ahead, Andre. Ah, I thought you were going <laughs> to. So first of all, Dr. Z, I think, again, like I said, you, you have that, that access to power behind the closed doors that we necessarily don't have. Mm -hmm. So that that's half the battle already. So I think, a lot of doctors have to be more mindful of their 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 voice. You, a lot of you blew up on social media, you know, because of your your stance, and I and I, I really appreciate that, because um and and not to devalue what you said, a lot of the stuff you said, I said, I'm sure Phil have said on social media for years, um, but sometimes it takes people in your position, you know, with your education, with your affluence, whatever it may be to sometimes make an effect. So I really appreciate that you, you know, took advantage of your platform and you, you did it wisely. And um, I'm, I'm sure that because of your, your, your willing to be vocal, um, that there have been changes. Um, so that being said, I really think, uh, just like going back to the American Dirt situation, I think what really jades me the most about this community, and I don't even think a lot of people are doing it on purpose, but um, just like you said, in order to have our voices amplified, um, then you need to give us time to speak. <laughs> and so um, sure. I have been uh, a, a sickle cell, I guess you could say a professional advocate 
for the past five or six years now, and I could count on my on my hand, one hand, the t- uh, the times where I was actually given just you know freedom to really speak. Um, normally, I'm invited on a panel, and they give me five minutes. You say, "My name's Andre. I have sickle cell SS," and then pass the mic, and then that's really all I get to say. Um, and that's not really effective. Um, <laughs> that's not really getting the job done. And I feel like sometimes we could be used as patients to really check the block. Okay, well, we invited the patient just, you know, to save face, you know, to look good for a picture. Um, that's how a lot of us as patients feel. Um, because when it gets to the nitty gritty, when it gets to going toe to toe with the actual issues, um, then people, um, it seems, just from my perspective, um, seems to shy away from those challenging conversations. I mean, even if we spark those challenging conversations, it's like, okay, well, we don't have that much time, so let's keep it moving. So that being said, I really appreciate this platform because it, you know, it allowed us to speak freely. Um, and this is something maybe Phil could refute, but I don't get the chance to do very often. So I think in order to amplify our voices, we should have platforms where we can speak freely about what has happened to us um, and and really let people know the issues. Um, Because I've been to certain pharma conventions, I've been to certain, um, you know, rare disease conventions. And when I had the chance to talk, um, more than likely it was a comment to somebody else's talk Um, people always would come up to me and say, oh, my God, I did not know this existed or I did not know this was happening. Um, And because you said something that opened our eyes and can you consult with our company or can you, you know, review this or review that? Um, And those were the times where I felt like my voice was most effective. Mm -hmm. So so there has to be a way where the medical community can, you know, do more town halls. I think if you have sickle cell patients, especially like places where I live, where it's a huge sickle cell population here, um, but the the provider resources are bare to none. Um, If I were to unfortunately get sick today and have to go to the hospital, they would have to medevac me to Duke because there are no hematology specialists here. So they know nothing about sickle cell. I've had doctors come in my room and say, we've never heard of it. Tell me what to do. Um, and so if we're in those kind of situations, to me, like I said before, I think it's upon the hospitals, the providers to provide a, a platform to have a town hall to hear our voices, do something where we could share what we think can improve the system. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that is the biggest thing. Um, secondly, I think I just think patients need to start suing. <laughs> Um, I think patients need to start really making a ruckus. I think a lot of patients um, have experienced so much racism or so much discrimination in the healthcare system. Like I said, we get numb. Um, we finally get the help that we need. We get you know treated and we get discharged. And then we're on to the next crisis or on to the next um, life event. Um, and we really never hold those bad actors accountable. And I think if we start really holding them accountable um, and threatening their licenses and and threatening, you know, um, malpractice, which is probably what they were doing, then I think they may listen to us a lot more. Um, So I hope that makes sense of what I was what I was saying. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. And just really quickly before I jump to Phil, I want to, you know, I was talking to this 
I, maybe you guys saw it, the, the episode um, of my podcast where I talked to Nori Davis, who has sickle cell disease, and he said something that I thought was so appropriate. He said that this is, um, you know, sickle cell disease is the back of the bus disease. And it's a back of the bus disease, wow. not only for patients, but for anybody who's interested in it, right? Like even for me as a sickle cell doctor, it's hard to get the attention of my colleagues and my the, the people who can make a difference. It's hard. It's not easy to have discussions and get people interested and excited. But voices like yours, voices like Phil's is going to help me do that. It's going to empower me too. Phil, tell me what you're thinking. Mm, uh, again, reiterating, expounding on a lot of what, what Andre said, um, I, I would add that um, particularly as, as pertains to I'm debating whether I should start with sickle cell specifically or versus African-American health care outcomes overall. Mm. Let's let's start there and then drill down to sickle cell. Mm -hmm. um, understanding the psychosocial determinants, right, uh, to, to, to steal Andre's line, perhaps. Um, but <laughs> I think sometimes what happens, especially when we show up in, in the emergency room, mm -hmm. is... Um, we want doctors to be doctors. We want them to be scientists. We want them to, as best they can, get to the root cause of what it is that has brought us in there. And sometimes um, I understand because of the dynamics of what goes on in the ER, um, the look can become exclusively clinical, right? Um, and, and the point of taking a history is to try to develop a, a, full, a full picture of the patient, but um, if a patient is coming back to your emergency room over and over and over again, rather than simply conclude that the person is seeking drugs, perhaps explore whether or not it's the it's their stability where that person is living, or if that person might be homeless. You know what I mean? There could be any number of reasons besides the clinical uh, manifestation itself that um, that would bring somebody into the ER. They essentially might be kind of seeking a, a safe haven for something. Um, again, we're alluding to the psychosocial determinants. Um, there's research that suggests that um, with, the, you know, in, in sickle cell patients in particular, that when there are instances of depression and anxiety, these things can trigger greater severity of sickle cell complications. And so if there is some kind of destabilizing factor going on that's not necessarily directly having to do with my my, my chart, you know, try to either, you know, implement the resources with the ER to try to capture that full picture. And some, and some hospitals, some um, do this better than others where they, they bring in either a social work or, or anything like that. But part of it is in how you end up talking to that patient to begin with. And so I understand that that expanded view can't all be the purview of the ER doctor. There are other patients to treat this triage thing happening. But what are the partnerships within the hospital that allow for those kind of potentially underlying um, causes that aren't necessarily directly um, related to the physical health, but that could be exacerbating the physical health outcomes? So that's that's one thing. Um, as pertains to sickle cell specifically, you know, investing in hematologists. You know, I'm sympathetic as somebody who was once upon a time, I was on the pre-med track. I'm sympathetic to the idea that if you, you go to med school and you might be on that whole hematology oncology track to specialize, you know, if you're coming out of med school with a quarter million dollars worth of debt, 
it behooves you to go down the path of specialization that will most likely reimburse you so that you can pay off your debt and so that you as a doctor can live a life. The fact that we don't have a number of hematologists who understand our condition benign, you know, it seems like the incentives are in place to to drive people more towards oncology. And then it often finds that when feels like when people like us and, and I imagine there's overlap in hemophilia and other other forms of um, other, you know, more blood diseases where there's there seems to be this tension of, uh, you know, in care here versus what what the, the cancer patients might see. Right. And so there there seems to be much more um, oncology doctors available who, who, you know, they they have this specialization, they understand cancer, then there are doctors who are fighting the good fight on the hematology level. Like what are the compensation? What are the incentives? Does there need to be some form of debt forgiveness for doctors who pursue that specialization that does may not compensate as well as, as another? And so, you know, this is something I, I obviously would have to defer to your expertise because you're, you're more on the front lines with dealing with some of these nuances. But um, I have to, it seems to me that uh, we get the outcomes we get because there is a certain per perverse misalignment of the incentives. And so if if doctors aren't suitably aligned, um, incentivized to pursue hematology, we will always consistently find ourselves in ERs where the doctors don't understand what we're dealing with. And um, they're they're prescribing medicines that may may not be the best for our specific you know, circumstance uh, and, and the like. And so those are just two examples or two places, again, to start. Yeah. But I think, oh. um, again, more conversations that like this with other people who have other perspectives that, and could, could point us in directions that perhaps Jerry and myself have overlooked uh, is going to be, will be fruitful to the discussion, you know. Uh, that's very insightful, uh, Phil, man. I, um, you know, I, I totally agree with you. We, we have such a provider issue in sickle cell disease um, to the point that I'm a pediatric sickle cell physician and I can't transition. I can't graduate my pediatric patients to the adult side because I don't have a hematologist to transition them to. So me saying, all right, you're done being peds, um, good luck, is me saying, I'm going to triple your chance of dying by three or four times because... Um, I'm going to send you out there. There's no one to take care of you. So now I'm just seeing patients older and older because um, I don't have a choice. Um, and, and yeah, it's a sore spot, man. The incentivization is a sore spot. But, but what, what ends up happening, though, it's, it's a double-edged sword because what ends up happening is the people then who go into sickle cell disease are going into sickle cell disease for the right reasons. right? There's not many of us. But you've got your, you know, Dr. Drew Campbell's. You've got your Berea Andamariums, right? You've got your, your Mike Callahan's. You've got your, um, you know, these Mike DeBonds, you've got these great physicians that are in this area for the right reasons, the Wally Smiths, you know? Um, and I think that makes us powerful too, right? Instead of having people in this for the wrong reasons, right? Like there are, you know, any one of those people I named will go to war with sickle cell patients, right? Uh, and fight the system with them. Um, and that makes, that's, there's also some power in that too. I, I, I hope, sort of selfishly that the incentivization gets better. I'm not going to lie to you, but uh, don't get me wrong. Um, but uh, I think that the family that we have, or the community that we've built, um, it's bigger than, it's bigger than race. It's, it's bigger than, um, you know, class. It's, it's bigger than all of these other issues. It connects us by, by blood, 
you know, um, and that, that's a really powerful connection that we have. Um, and that's what empowers our community. I think that these open conversations between physicians and patients, listening to you guys, and then spreading these conversations as far as they'll go to whoever will listen is very powerful. Um, especially when it's people like you who are able to give that message so clearly, that are able to really um, put aside um, emotion in that moment and just give facts, you know, really, really um, draw in an audience. So, I mean, my, my promise to this community, man, is I'm going to give you as many platforms as I can, uh, and I'm going to amplify you to anybody who's willing to listen. Um, I, I want I want to be I want to be cognizant of your time because I know you're working too. Um, uh, so so you know as we're as we're finishing this up, man. Um, I I just want to give you a chance to give us some give us some closing thoughts here, and um, you know I know you said so much here, but um, just just give us some closing thoughts and give us something to reflect on um, for us for us to think about as we continue through this, what I think is like an inflection point on how this country is going to look um, going forward. Just just, just, just give us some closing thoughts. I, I'm optimistic that a lot of the response we're seeing in forums like this, these are, these are green shoots that again, they, 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 they kind of, they revalue what the historical value judgment has been about our voice, um, you know, because you know, how can anybody care about black lives if they don't care about black voices, right? So thank you, thank you both for this, for for providing venues and forums for us to at least to express our voice and to to um, to, to assign it a value that it has not always been been assigned. I think what we as a community also need to do is recognize the strength of our voice amongst and within ourselves and uh, to turn to each other for the healing we might not be able to get outside of the community. Um, we can be pillars of strength for, for ourselves, just as folks like you and, and all the great doctors that you mentioned, um, you guys are pillars of strength. We draw inspiration from the fight that you guys fight. We know that you guys are given the options at, you know available to you that those of you who have chosen this path and, and to, to, to join the trenches with us, um, particularly in sickle cell, we know that you guys do it from a place, your heart is there, right? It's not, it's easy um, for most people, the lowest common denominator is to just kind of choose, again, follow the incentives and then you end up at a certain place. But when you look around and you realize that the outcomes that we get get magnified and amplified by those incentives, hopefully we can, we can realize that by um, valuing our own voices, can somehow work to dismantle the incentives as they exist and um, and make it such that as a community, we are leveraging, we are advocating on behalf of those who aren't always in a position, right? You know, if I'm in a hospital, I'm not always going to be um, <laughs> of the frame of mind, um, you know, or of, of a, a low enough pain tolerance, uh, a pain threshold to have this this kind of very lucid kind of conversation with somebody who hopefully will uh, is vested in being a partner for a good health outcome for me as um, you know, hopefully that that feeling is mutual. And uh, but I do think that uh, by continuing to share our voice, which um, you know, through podcasts like the one like your own and others that um, that Andre's worked on, 
we can get and yours to, and yours well, no, RJ, RJ's a co-collaborator co -collaborator in that and even this this bloodstream media i think this is this is where we need to get those voices out we need to get um that community we need to get the engagement mm -hmm. that um that again many doctors who again who, whose heart has led them into these trenches but maybe themselves do not see the options to engage and to to uh, move the conversation forward in a productive way hopefully this will provide more opportunities for that so i think um there is a lot of power in us that we don't always know that we have and that we can see but that we do draw we do draw a lot of, of movement and, and uh, momentum from folks like you guys so just just please keep it going um i know andre would add so many great ones so hopefully hopefully he jumps back on soon but uh but he i actually, think that's where he we said, go he said he sent a message apologizing he had to run he had a doctor's appointment actually oh did he okay all right fair, fair enough, enough. fair enough yeah. we so, certainly aren't going to keep him from that <laughs> right exactly so um i i, I don't want to i think as far as closing remarks go i wish i had something a little bit more the last time me and you talked was almost two years ago yeah. uh, i still draw inspiration from that day that we spent together um in fort lauderdale talking about you know important issues in sickle cell disease and men's health this conversation is going to push me for probably a decade man um don't don't underestimate the power of your voice i want to impress on you that you are being heard um we we're with you in solidarity, man, and um, we're going to keep pushing forward to make sure that this is not another Rodney King, that this is not, you know, America stops paying attention. There's no chance. We're going to keep amplifying your voice and we're going to keep going. Okay, that's 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 at least my promise to you and your community. Um, so I want to thank you, man, for spending time with us today. Your time is so valuable and I appreciate that. Um, I hope we get to stay in touch and I hope we get to do this again. Happen for us again, man. Yeah, this was really valuable. Personally, I'm very thankful for this, and I'm really curious to see uh, what people's responses are. I do want to mention for anyone out there who, like me, is sometimes coming out of emotional or challenging conversations with the desire for something specific I can go do, there are a lot of worthy places you can put your energy. I'll name one place in particular, a website called 8cantwait.org, the number 8cantwait.org. Um, it was organized by, amongst other people, DeRay McKesson, who is an organizer and an activist who has a great podcast called Pod Save the People, which I would highly recommend. There are eight practices that, if implemented, reduce police violence 72%. This has been statistically proven. And so Eight Can't Wait is about how there isn't time to wait to implement these eight practices at police departments all across the country to help reduce violence dramatically. So if you're looking for something that you can do, especially if you, like me, are not a black person or are a white person feeling like there's more I can be doing, what can I be doing? Go to acantwait.org, learn about the practices in your local police department and know specifically what you need to be asking for them to implement. With that, I'll echo Amar's saying thank you to Phil. Um, thank you for this conversation. It will be released as well on Monday via, or next week I should say, by both Cheat Codes and the Bloodstream Podcast. And keep up the great work. Thank you both. Have a great, safe and productive weekend. Thank Take you. Care. Keep living well with sickle cell, my man. Hmm. do. Take care. I first got to meet Andre and Philip a little over a year ago in Fort Lauderdale. And in that one day that I got to spend with them talking about men's health and sickle cell disease, I knew there was special about these two. The conversations I had with them inspired me and continue to inspire me. 
I have benefited tremendously from the presence of these individuals in my life. I'm lucky that I have had the fortune of crossing paths with individuals that make me a better person, that make me question my own blind spots and my own implicit bias. And today's conversation was a reflection of that. We all have to grow and learn to live together in this really, really difficult time. And conversations like these are going to continue to be the key for us to find peace. I hope everyone out there is feeling safe. We'll see you next time.